0: Welcome to the Better Money, Better World Show, a podcast project of Impact Capital Managers, or ICM. ICM is a group of investors who believe that by solving the world's greatest challenges, we will generate market-leading returns for investors while bending the arc of human history towards sustainability and justice. ICM members have backed companies ranging from Tesla to Coursera to Vital Farms. Collectively, ICM's 60 members manage over $12 billion dollars. I'm your host, Daniel Pianco, a co-founder of ICM. My day job is co-founder and managing director of Achieve Partners, a leading investor in education and human capital. Here on Better Money, Better World, we'll explore the stories of our investor members, the companies we're building, and the limited partners allocating money to investors who don't just seek alpha, but also to leverage their capital to build a better world. Episodes will be released each week and feature a new guest telling their own unique investment stories, strategies, and perspectives. And we've got lots of great guests lined up. So if you're excited about what this show might teach you about impact investing and the people behind it, make sure you subscribe to Better Money, Better World wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're feeling generous, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to highlight the work of impact investors and grow the community of impact investing. Now, with that out of the way, let me introduce you to our Better Money, Better World guests. Lumos Capital Group invests $10 to $30 million into growing companies defining the future of learning and work. Founded by Victor Hu and James Tiang, Lumos looks to partner with companies that are growing impactful, tech enabled products and services in the global education sector. Lumos seeks out mission-aligned founders and businesses. Their portfolio includes companies like Open Classrooms, a digital reskilling and learning platform, and Ironhack, a global technology bootcamp. With the digital transformation of education, traditional products and distribution channels are being disrupted by a new category of customer-centric platforms and services, which in turn has created a new class of high-growth education companies. Before Lumos, Victor served as managing director and global head of education, technology, and services investment banking at Goldman Sachs. Prior to Goldman, Victor worked at Zephyr Management and as an attorney at Cleary Gottlieb. Previously, James served as a principal of Quad Partners, an education-focused private equity firm. Prior to Quad, James was at Apex Partners, Irving Place Capital, and McKinsey. James and Victor shared a similar faith background, having attended the same church in New York, and both come from immigrant background. They have been a world-class advisor board, including Chip Pousek, Tom Davison, Louise Rogers, Dennis Yang, and Paul Kim. Listen as James and Victor describe their strategy of investing 10 to $30 million into the next generation of global education growth companies. I am joined today by Victor Hu and James Tiang of Lumos Capital. Welcome, Victor and James.
1: Thanks, Daniel. Thank you.
0: As you know, we always start with a deal you're particularly excited about. What
2: deal would, would you like to talk about today? So we'll talk about open classrooms. This is a deal that we did... Uh, Just a few months ago, it's a company based in Paris, and it is an alternative higher education digital learning platform. Two million monthly learners focused on reskilling and education to employment. Uh, And I'd say this is a deal that is right down the middle of the fairway of what we would consider a Lumos deal for a number of reasons. The first is incredibly... Impact-aligned, you know, mission-driven, mission-first type of company, and that that really just goes to the DNA of the founders. They started working in this category well before they ever created the, the company, with the idea of bringing low-cost or free um, higher education and skills-oriented uh, training to, uh, to to people uh, across Western Europe, uh, Northern Africa, and now they're they're. Uh, global across 140 countries, uh, and um, so so that has really driven um, the growth of the business and really the the impact that they've had is just this DNA from the founders. Um, the second is you know it was the investment really was built on a ongoing relationship with the company, with uh, the founders and with the board. Uh, we had worked with. Several members of of the board prior uh, in prior transactions and IPOs and m a transactions and and they had initially introduced us to the uh, the founders and we'd had an ongoing dialogue for some time um, and and that's always the way we we like to approach these investments is get to know companies and a business uh, over a period of time develop uh, a dialogue um, develop mutual trust uh, and that. Um, Can lead pretty naturally to uh, investment opportunity, Um, and and then the third reason why I think it's it's a good sort of representative deal, um, you know, for us is that it was, you know, we're we're always thinking about our value add um, and what our angle is as uh, investors and why us, and this was a company that you know it was it was at an inflection point in growth, but they were also looking specifically around global expansion, thinking about entering a number of new markets. Um, they were thinking about M&A, and they were basically looking for someone with our background. You know, James and, and I have spent uh, all of our, our our careers, really, over the last decade plus, focused on, on different markets in this sector, working in M&A, uh, working with companies in a pretty hands-on way. And so, um, you know, our background was a really good fit for them.
0: So you start off by saying a lot of buzzwords about what the company does. Was there one thing where you said this is a business model we really want to get behind?
2: You know, this is a company that has combined um, quality with scalability. And so, you know, for us, we're always looking for digital platforms that actually can bring a real outcome to the individual learner, but at the same time, you know, has a scalable model that can grow to. Um, numerous countries and and tens or hundreds of thousands of learners. And their model, which is uh, an asynchronous learning model um, paired with live mentorship, uh, industry mentorship, uh, and a project-based pedagogy, you know that is a combination of, of features that we found to be uh, both highly scalable uh, and very um, outcomes oriented and actually can get people, um, the right types of skills and keep them engaged because of the the live industry mentorship uh, aspect to it. And ultimately, um, they also bring a, a pretty significant career services um, element to it and, and really focus on placing uh, folks into jobs. And so that that's the combination of things.
0: And and there looks like it's been a um over a hundred million dollars raised into the into the company. Is that normal for you as well to have sort of multiple other investors coming in alongside of you or 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 prior to
2: you? Yeah, know, we generally are, are looking at companies that um typically have had some kind of institutional backing because we we would love to be, you know, the last institutional round before the, the company uh ends up um you know getting to profitability and and considering a um uh, an event, uh, and um, you know this business. We, we ended up leading an eighty million dollar round, um, so it was a, a, a pretty, uh, you know, sizable round with Series C uh, transaction. And we ended up actually working with a number of uh, investors around the table who uh, we had known uh, for some time. And uh, that's also uh, always a, a helpful fact pattern. Something that that we look for is uh, having friendly faces around the board table and people we feel like we can really collaborate with.
0: That's great. And now, James, turning to you, you had a long, successful career at Quad Partners, um, an education-focused buyout fund prior to joining Lumos. What made you go off and and join Victor to
1: start Lumos? It's a great question, Daniel. For me, I really enjoyed my time uh, at Quad Partners. It's where I really cut my teeth learning uh, how to invest in the education sector, how to partner with companies in the sector to be successful. Uh, And over time, you know, frankly, I I, I always ask myself, you know, critically, am I maximizing my best self? Uh, And over time, I felt, you know, quite compelled um, to try to build a firm from the ground up. And as you know, as an entrepreneur as well, Daniel, there's nothing quite like that. And I think from a learning perspective, uh, that was really the attraction of trying to build a firm. It was a new challenge, but also a new set of learning opportunities Um, and the icing on the cake really was to do that with a friend, somebody that I'd built a relationship with over the past decade, somebody who comes from a similar faith background as myself. And so we had personal kind of connectivity and relationship to bring to bear as well. And so to try to build something with a friend was a unique opportunity. And so I really jumped at it, um, after quad.
0: Yes. So you wanted to uh, uh, go through the fun of starting your own firm and and losing all your hair like me, although you've avoided that. Um, So how did you, it it sounds like you had a a very long kind of relationship build. How did you two initially meet? And then what led to this kind of deeper connection? You mentioned Faith, for example.
1: Yeah. So we were introduced, uh, gosh, now over 10 years ago uh, by a woman who's a senior banker at Goldman Sachs, where Victor, as you know, was the global head of the education investment banking practice. Um, and we hit it off. You know, this was the time when I just had joined Quad Partners. Um, we got together, compared notes in the sector and really just had sort of a common view on the opportunity. As you recall, when when this industry started to take shape at that point in time, you know, we didn't have an iPad, right? There was limited technology that uh, looks like what we have today. At the same time, I think all of us have seen such a groundswell of opportunity in terms of what disruption and innovation can mean for the sector. The personal pieces for us, you know, number one, shared faith. Um, You know, we actually attended the same church in New York City at different times. And so that was one point of connection. Also was just, you know, the story around why education matters to us. You know, we have family members that come from the education sector. Uh, we've seen sort of impacts um, in terms of what education meant in terms of that transition as, you know, call it immigrants that came into the U.S., for example, uh, from our parents' generation and before that even. Um, so all these things kind of, you know, really built a, a strong relationship that lasted over years to the point where we started to think about, you know, what could a business opportunity look like? And that's what Lumos is today. That's great and, and really uh, a, an amazing
0: founder story. Now, Victor, you led Goldman Sachs' education group, and were part of some of the most important IPOs and the like uh, at, at w- running that practice. Do, do you think that that is a driving force for why you're able to get into some of these transactions, like Open Classrooms?
2: Well, while I was at, at Goldman, I certainly um, you know did have the the opportunity to uh, work on on some really interesting uh, deals and transactions in the sector, and really benefited from. Uh, the growth of the space over time. you know, as as you know well, Daniel, when we we all first got started, uh, you know back in the day, you know the the investment activity in this space was quite small relative to the size of the industry. Um, the entrepreneurship was was also um, you know quite small uh, relative to to certainly what it is now. But uh, it's just grown uh, in such an incredible way over the course of the last you know decade and a half. Um, and you know all of that activity around that space um ended up leading to some really interesting transaction opportunities and um and and I ended up having the opportunity to, to meet and work with um, entrepreneurs all around the world uh in this space who um um you know I, th- I think what's really distinctive about working with companies in the sector is so many of them you know have those those uh, compelling personal stories um and and, and really Incredibly uh, deep-rooted, you know, belief in the power of education. So they they are they're so mission-driven and mission-minded, um, and that's just a really exciting, you know, thing to uh, spend our days working with uh, entrepreneurs like that. Uh, but but that certainly was, uh, you know, a, a important thing, you know, for us as as we saw the sector grow over the course of the decade. Saw, you know, opportunities in the market. You know, and James and I sort of had a a, a very Aligned view of, of where things were going. And, and um, that's how we, we came together. Now, you mentioned a few times sort of
0: uh, how we've all grown up. We actually have all grown up in this industry to a large extent. Um, and three of us have known each other for a long time. You know, there was more money invested in EdTech in 2021 than all of 2020. And that was almost twice uh, the prior year and was a record year in and of itself. Can you talk about why you think EdTech is now in a different place and able to support your strategy?
2: Yeah, ha- happy to. Um, I I think that that it really is a confluence of multiple trends, you know, going on um, at the same time. Many of which uh, actually are are much broader based, um, you know, just technologically driven trends. As James mentioned, you know, earlier the the growth of uh, broadband, the growth of you know personal devices and and the smartphone, mobile generally, uh, and cloud based you know computing. All of these things being adopted by. The individual, uh, the individual consumer, the institution, the school, uh, you know, the, the, the company, the university, um, has uh, has has all led to uh, a lot of this new you know innovation, entrepreneurship. Um, you know, education historically, you know, while a massive sector was always you know, incredibly fragmented and going through the traditional B two B channels, whether in K twelve or higher education, was always uh, difficult and slow. Uh, but the sales and marketing strategies have really evolved as these technological platforms have uh, have grown uh, more broadly in the in the sector, and I think that has really accelerated uh, growth. And then I, th- I think that that there's just an incredibly uh, strong focus today. Uh, I think greater awareness today relative to a decade or two decades ago on, you know, the importance of human capital, developing human capital from just a public sector perspective, the investment that's come into the space, but also certainly uh, from the consumer's perspective of, you know, education being really the key to longer term, you know, economic opportunity. Uh, And so I think the investment uh, in this space uh, at the individual level, uh, both in developed and and especially in developing markets, uh, really is as an all-time high. Can
0: you talk a little bit, uh, a little bit about that? Because a lot of your investments do have a global component, and how uh, that fits into your investment thesis.
2: Yeah, I know, J- James. Do you want to touch a little bit on, on uh, you know, some of the uh, what we were looking at um, that behind sort of Ironhack and Open Classrooms and various others?
1: Of course. Um, so, I mean, Daniel, for us, you know, as we're um, you know getting started as a firm as a franchise, uh, we we think a lot about sort of global opportunities in part because that. In the best case should be upside for all of uh, the businesses that we back um, because global relevancy you know is quite strong uh in almost every area of education other than you know language being one sort of barrier to localize around um and so it does come into play for all of our investments generally speaking it's never kind of the core um sort of requirement to be successful uh, because there's plenty of opportunities in home markets to grow But where we can be helpful as a firm oftentimes is in that global expansion opportunity whether it's helping companies based in the u.s think about their footing abroad take an example like an online med ed based in austin texas it has reached across 190 different countries but still is scratching the surface in terms of the aspiring healthcare practitioners that they help to educate over time an iron hack while it's a u.s company has substantial presence in places like europe as well as Latin America. Uh, and we can help connect the dots uh, to become a more global and, and in a lot of ways centralized kind of enterprise as well. Um, and so the other alternative is thinking about companies based abroad and helping them get their footing in places like the US, where we obviously have strong relationships and open classrooms is one example, where as they you know expand more and more beyond Europe, uh, we think we can be helpful as they forge relationships, both uh, at the enterprise with corporates, uh, but also with government relations that we can bring to bear as well. So um, we think it's upside, uh, again, for virtually every company we back. And um, is there a secret sauce? Like, is there something you look for that that can translate globally? It comes in different flavors, right? So it starts with, are you delivering great outcomes? And that that is in a lot of ways tethered to kind of the impact framework we bring to bear, right? So if company, uh, if companies that we back are helping improve outcomes, which could be academically uh, measured. It could be in the form of placement rates, graduation rates, et cetera. Uh, if they're bridging sort of uh, gaps as it relates to cost and access, if they are serving underrepresented uh, groups as well, you know, these different components can be very much scalable, particularly when you have technology as the backbone. Um, and so we'll see through that. And if you hit sort of all those dimensions, or at least a few of them, uh, and have sort of a model that can be transported, uh, barring language as perhaps the only barrier, um, then that's something that we think we can bring to the global markets. You mentioned your impact strategy and sort of underlying
0: a lot of what uh, your origin story and what you talked about. You decided to partner with ICM member Impact Engine for your impact reporting strategy. Can you talk about that partnership? It's
2: really been an outstanding uh, you know, partnership working with uh, Priya and and. Uh, the rest of the team at at Impact Engine, uh, they were um, one of our our earliest uh, LPs. that came into the first close. Um, they had, had built a relationship with James um, and uh, and with me over a period of time, and um, you know they they have pretty deep experience uh, in the sector, and so very quickly we invited them to to join and actually chair our Impact Advisory Council. Uh, and uh so what what that that means is sort of regular meetings uh where we talk about deal situations or talk about investment process, uh about our impact framework. And you know, we invite uh, their feedback, we invite um, you know, their uh you know, thoughts around best practices in the industry. Uh and uh it's it's really been a, a terrific exchange of ideas. You know, in some cases we've we've you know brought these. Uh, sort of impact gray areas where you know companies in the sector are doing really terrific things um in in the space but also have you know other sort of side effects or you know protect, perhaps uh areas um that you know make it um you know whether it be privacy or uh you know platforms that that uh, students have you know used um you know perhaps for for sort of academic dishonesty um that uh, you know may, may create a, a more uh, you know, complex sort of uh, situation when we think about about impact, um, and uh, and so we bring those types of opportunities up for discussion, and um, and and Impact Engine really has been uh, incredibly helpful. We also, um, you know, just th- they are the, an investor themselves um, directly uh, in companies, and so you know we sometimes share deal flow um, and um, and collaborate, and we've we've invested together uh, in some opportunities.
0: You mentioned uh, your advisory board uh, in passing, but you've got an amazing group as a, as a as an advisory board. Um, can you talk about a few of the names that have been? I know all of them are hugely impactful, but one or two uh, folks, and then one or two examples of what they've done on your behalf.
2: Sure, they they've been um, just a, a terrific group uh, of folks that that as we thought about what would really be helpful to entrepreneurs and be helpful to us in the investment process. We've sort of thought about it across a a few different dimensions. And so we have CEOs of of, uh, education and ed tech businesses that have scaled companies to hundreds of millions of of dollars of of revenue across a number of different markets. So, you know, folks like Chip Palasek, CEO of 2U uh, in the higher ed, category, or Tom Davidson, you know, really around corporate learning, uh, SaaS models, you know, Louise Rogers, who who built an incredible business in the uh, the content space, or Dennis Yang, who, um, you know, built Udemy into a, a real leader in, in lifelong learning. Um, so both B2B and B2C across all of these, these different end markets. Um, we talked about geography earlier. And so, you know, one thing that some of these adv- advisory directors really bring also is experience, working in, in uh, markets like India or, or East Asia and so Tom Barry you know really is is, is uh, almost a godfather of, of emerging markets investing um, having been in this space for the last uh, three decades. Um, and uh, you know he helps us in India and other emerging markets you know John McIntyre who is the CEO of Goldman Sachs in Latin America, you know Jimmy on and, and he Song in, in East Asia. Um, and then I, in terms of an example uh, of how they've they've worked, uh, with us. So, uh, Dr. Paul Kim, who's um, the, the CTO at Stanford School of Education, who uh, I, I know you know and, and is friends with many of our friends in, in the industry, um, you know, he is uh, just incredibly hands-on, product-focused, really excited about uh, the opportunities that, that technology can bring in the space. You know, we invested in the company uh, at one point, and he um, then spent a full day with their chief Product Officer, Chief Technology Officer, on product roadmap. He brought a, um, a view as a customer. So as uh, st- you know Stanford is a customer of this this business. and so he can bring in an, an incredible perspective. He's also incredibly globally connected and can really help with uh, expansion across new markets. And so that would be an example of how um, some of our advisory directors work with our companies.
0: So I have a softball for you, James. Uh, your strategy is to invest between 10 and 30 million dollars in, in growth businesses in these education and training markets in highly fragmented industries. Um, there are a lot of growth equity firms that sound like they have a similar strategy to you. When you sit down with an entrepreneur and you say, This is why you should partner with the most capital,
1: what do you say? Uh, another great question, Daniel. Um, I would say it, it comes in two different flavors. Number one is um, the sector focus. You know, really does matter, right? So if you stack us up against a firm that doesn't focus twenty four hours twenty four hours a day, seven days a week on the sector, um, that is one way we can be distinctive, right? We don't have to be educated on uh, what business models look like and what end markets look like. And so oftentimes, we'll come to entrepreneurs with insights we can bring to bear immediately, even if it's the first meeting, where we can talk about their industry, their sector, their customers, and how their products fit into that market. Uh, And we can get into, you know, tactical topics very quickly. And I think that often sort of shines um, vis-a-vis firms that might be more generalist in nature. And the other piece would be, you know, there's obviously a growing number of firms um, that touch on the sector of education and human capital development, Um, all of them are our friends, frankly, and we think it's synergistic to be in the ecosystem together. Um, I think where we stand out potentially there is some of the global kind of opportunities we talked about. Um, And number two, uh, a little bit on stage, right? Because where we're investing is companies that are crossing that $10 million of revenue. And so we can be a nice sort of transition capital um, from those that might be, let's say, earlier stage um, in nature, and so this growth stage that we've defined for ourselves, uh, we think we have a lot of case examples from our track record that demonstrates how we've built companies that have approached cross $10 million of revenue and then accelerated to 30, 50, 100 plus million dollars. Uh, and so from a stage perspective, we think we can be quite distinctive as well. And oftentimes those align together and it becomes you know, a compelling proposition for the entrepreneurs that we back. And to what extent is
0: M and A, uh, Victor, as a former M and uh, A banker, a critical part of what you
2: guys do? It's quite core. Uh, something that that we talk about actively, really, with every company that we've invested in uh, today. We actually try and and meet with uh, the teams uh, there on a pretty regular basis, um, just to surface M and A opportunities, partnership opportunities. Um, as, as we talked about, the sector you know, remains pretty fragmented across most of the, the end markets, and so there really is a opportunity for consolidation and bringing uh, a broader array of uh, solutions into a single sort of technology platform or stack for the uh, the, the end user, or the, uh, the institutional buyer, and so and, and it also is a, a a way to sort of accelerate um, market entry. Uh, and and maybe de-risk uh, you know some of that um, as as companies sort of hit certain inflection points and and really are are seeking to grow into new markets and so we look at it pretty actively. James also when he was at Quad um, really um, you know implemented a, a buy and build strategy for an enormous number of of the companies that he invested in and so you know together we we bring that kind of mindset uh, to the, um, uh, the, the the table and and work pretty actively with our companies around it.
1: I think that is pretty unique. Can you talk, James, about the buy and build strategy as Victor just described them? Um, it's it's been true for virtually all of the companies that I've backed historically, even going back to my days at Apex Partners and Urban Place Capital. Um, but within education, I think you know we've seen opportunities uh, emerge in different ways. You know, if you take companies like Innerfolio or TargetX, these were higher education software companies um, that I'd backed uh, in the past. Uh, in those cases, the M&A was most useful to complete the product offering, right? Uh, because the goal in selling, uh, certainly on a B2B basis, is to have you know, more relevancy and more value uh, that leads to greater wallet share over time, where you can deliver value and ideally build a bigger business through those uh, relationships that expand over time. Um, and so in those cases, for example, it was about being very surgical and figuring out in our product roadmap what's missing. And also listening to the customers in terms of what would you know, better enable us to sell a truly enterprise solution. And then you know, making the decision whether you build it, which might take a few years to you know, get beyond MVP into something that really sort of slots into uh, your product or you know buying. And in buying, you also buy a customer base that can be impactful and lo and behold, there are oftentimes, you know, synergies um, that actually, you know, um, hit the, the cost side as well. And so it becomes a very powerful tool if done well. I will say that, you know, uh, m also has um, consequences when you don't get integration right, when you don't retain talent uh, and you don't think through these uh, issues in the roadmap, you know, sort of post-integration before you even complete that deal. So it can be quite challenging as well. But when you build that playbook and find the right companies and partner with the right teams. Uh, it's been transformative, even if it's just latching onto a certain product area. Uh, in other cases, it's about consolidation as Victor mentioned as well. And so you take a company like Taskstream now called Watermark, and we grew from you know, 400 plus customers to 1,400 in a matter of 18 months uh, by implementing uh, a pretty aggressive uh, consolidation uh, strategy. But you know, in so doing, needed a, a new CEO that had that sort of go, uh, that muscle built in uh, to be able to do it well. Uh, and so it does take the right team. It takes the right thought process, uh, but we've seen it work out quite well. You're, you're a great mix
0: of product, uh, organic product growth and M&A. How do you measure outcomes across such a broad array of companies um, and, and uh, tracking the impact metrics that you worked with Impact Engine on?
2: Yeah, it's it's quite uh, bespoke um, for each company, but it does sort of fit within a common framework. You know, we think about uh, quality uh, number one, uh, access number two, and equity uh, number three um, as sort of the three pillars uh, of our impact framework. Which uh, we then, um, for each company, you know, we think about um, bespoke. Uh, metrics um, for that company's end market and business model that makes sense um, across these dimensions. Not every company will, um, you know, hit all three um, in a meaningful way. Uh, some of them, you know, perhaps are more focused on accessibility. Perhaps some are uh, address, um, you know, equity in, in a more direct way. Uh, but that's sort of how we we've looked at it. And as James mentioned earlier, you know, across, um, you know, these. Uh, these areas, you know we we do look at uh, you know things like um, you know graduation rates, uh, like uh, salary bumps um, as uh, you know retention uh, and and various other other aspects of of quality in terms of of access. we we certainly look at cost relative to alternatives um and then we think about the the all in sort of total cost of ownership, if you will, um and return on on education for the uh, the the end consumer. Um, and so uh, it is. Qu- it's quite different depending on whether it's a B two B model, or B two C model, or in, in some cases B two B to C or B two C to B. But uh, uh, we de- we design it on a, a pretty bespoke basis.
0: That, that was a bit of an alphabet soup. Um, <laughs> you just thought, when you look at it, it's it's you're selling to universities, and then the second one was you're selling to consumers directly, and then sometimes you're selling to. Third parties to sell to consumers and third parties to sell to investors. Am I getting? Or, uh, third parties sell to school
2: districts or schools. Am I getting that right? <laughs> We've oft- oftentimes seen these companies as they've grown. You know, for example, initially in in the B two C world, for example, um, they then end up over time as a second um, stage of growth, uh, creating a B two B or enterprise business. And oftentimes that go to market motion was B two C to B. Uh, In other words, the end users in that particular market um, created the demand um, for the institution ultimately to buy. Uh, Oftentimes, we see this in K-12 market with companies that um, have initially sold to teachers directly um, and offered um, maybe freemium models to teachers. And then at some point, the teachers all get together. There's a a significant user base. And then the district wants to buy um, a tool or the platform uh, to to, uh, enable it for the broader base.
0: Is this part of why ed tech is, is seeing so much interest right now is because institutions are starting to buy in greater, you know, you're not just getting a B2C type of market, but you're getting sort of a broader market. Can you talk about that evolution a little bit?
2: Yeah, we've actually seen this across virtually every end market, K-12, higher ed, into the corporate learning uh, space, where you know, companies that have built very large user bases on a B2C. Um, you know, direct to consumer type of business model have almost inevitably at some point in their growth uh, ended up creating uh, a B two B you know business, and that ends up supercharging you know the growth. We've seen that um, with actually some of the the largest companies that have now gone public uh, or have raised enormous rounds, unicorn uh, type businesses like Coursera uh, or Udemy. Um, you know, businesses that that has started historically with some kind of of, MOOC model in the case of Coursera or Marketplace model uh, with Udemy, but at some point had terrific content, had terrific user bases, and became very, very relevant for the enterprise. And I think you're right. This has been a big driver of growth over the course of the last four or five years in the industry.
0: Yeah, the, the MOOC died and begot sort of this B2B type hybrid educational institution with Coursera and the like. So it, it has evolved pretty dramatically. Um, as we finish up, we like to talk about sort of where the world will be in, in five years. Usually we talk about the, the size of ICM, but I'd like to ask you a slightly different question. Uh, today in the US, there are about five, depending on how you count them, you know, publicly traded ed tech type businesses. In five years, how many publicly traded ed tech businesses will there be?
2: At least fifty.
0: So ten x in terms of market
2: cap. I think ten x in terms of of market cap aggregate um, over the course of um, maybe maybe it's not exactly five years, but in in a pretty short foreseeable period of time. You know, we've already seen over the course of this past year like a, another dozen ed tech unicorns. Come into the marketplace, and virtually all of the unicorns that have been created in this space were minted as unicorns in the last four years or so. Virtually all of them, uh, and uh, and so you know those companies will uh, eventually get to the public markets. A good number of them, uh, and uh, I, I think right now, you know, from from our count, you know, we're already in the, the couple dozen. Ed tech companies uh, globally. If you if you think about the um, the definition pretty expansively, um, and, but uh, I think there's a lot more to come.
0: And and James, now you've got clearly the apex, the unicorns, the deca unicorns potentially even deca unicorns here in ed tech. Um, does that sort of mean that the broad base of ed tech companies will also, in terms of market value, uh, ten x over the next five years?
1: Potentially. You know, um, I mean, I think there's there's certainly a slowness in the industry that we've seen um, over the past 10 plus years. Right. At the same time, there's a lot of capital that will help drive that growth. And frankly, the the, the need and the use cases are as relevant as ever. Right. The pandemic has certainly showed us that in terms of um, how vulnerable, you know, generally speaking, we are in terms of how schools are set up, et cetera. And frankly, where there's opportunity that has gotten better, um, even through these tougher times, Um, And, you know, the private markets for sure will be one engine to do that. They'll be a facilitator for putting together companies. They'll be a facilitator for longer hold periods with certain businesses that we've seen that have been just great investments to hold for, you know, forever. Um, So I think there's a lot of different, you know, sort of factors at play. One is the public markets and frankly, the private markets as well uh, that will support a lot of these companies going forward.
0: Great, well, clearly a bull case for the EdTech ecosystem, which would be good for all participants and all the investors therein. Uh, Victor and James, thank you so much for sharing the most capital story. Uh, We look forward to seeing uh, the franchise that you build over the
1: next five to 10 years. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks so much, Daniel. This is Marika Spence, Executive Director of Impact Capital Managers. Better Money, Better World
2: is made possible in part by ICM, a nonprofit network of over 60 best-in-class fund managers investing for superior returns and meaningful impact across North America and beyond. Our
1: members share a passion for partnering with entrepreneurs and scaling companies that will realize a more resilient, equitable, and sustainable future. If you enjoyed today's conversation, tune in for the next episode of Better
2: Money, Better World. Tell your friends and visit us online at www.impactcapitalmanagers.com.